I am at least somewhat sympathetic to people who are incredulous upon first hearing about my notion of spinning H2O droplets that elongate into polymers as a result of wind shear, spinning incredibly rapid, conserving energy, billions and billions and trillions of these things, and creating a substance a substance that has some relatively unique properties compared to gases, which is, it's not a gas, or to vapor, air that has droplets of H2O suspended in it. It's not that either. Without there being a substance in the atmosphere that actually does function to create streaming, if we didn't have something that would do that, there couldn't be streaming, there couldn't be streams of any kind, there couldn't be jet streams, there also couldn't be tornadoes or the vortices that we do witness in the atmosphere. So something is doing that, and now we know what it is. It's a form of water on wind shear boundaries when the conditions therein are just right, which largely involve long, flat, smooth layers between moist air and dry air in the atmosphere. Beyond that, it's just a matter of some differences in temperature and pressure. But the movement in our atmosphere, the nature of the winds, the nature of Hadley cells, and the nature of storms are all a function of the fact that on wind shear boundaries, this other type of water can and does spin up. Tornadoes or vortices can only exist on boundaries. And frankly, when a tornado actually happens, it's more like the boundary between moist air and dry air, which in most parts of the world stays about a thousand feet above us. In some parts of the world, there's times when those boundaries themselves hit the, hit the surface. When this does happen, there can be a tornado. Might there be exceptions when a boundary layer does hit and nothing happens? I don't know. It might depend on other factors that we're not aware of. But keep in mind, all of this has to do with flow. And at all times, uh, this flow is connected to a primary engine of energy. And that engine is literally the jet stream at higher altitudes where the pressures are lower and the tube snaking along and to some degree dropping down. And as it does that, you know, as it drops down, it is going to start to accelerate the air therein because now there's going to be a relatively large differential between the air going in at the front of the vortice closer to the ground and shooting back up all the way to the jet stream and literally exhausting, exhausting into the jet stream. So the issue we're talking about, let me see if I can circle back around to that. And that issue that people are incredulous about this notion that H2O can spin up on wind shear boundaries and create a, a substance. That notion sounds extravagant to say the least. So I recognize that people would see it that way. But I want to break that line of thinking by telling you something that Feynman once said. Here's what Feynman said. Feynman, of course, is a famous scientist in the 1950s. He was a physicist. Feynman said, nature's imagination is much greater than man. Think about that. Nature's imagination is much greater than man. Now, the, the point there is that this may seem unusual to people, but keep in mind, from my perspective, it was really just a matter of finding something that would explain this phenomenon whereby a tornado picks up a stream, sucks it up into the tube, carries it for miles, the whole thing, and dumps it all in one place. To me, that was proof, absolute proof, that tornadoes had something structural about them. 
Now, in terms of imagining how there could be something structural, over many, many years, I would occasionally just start thinking about this. How could there be something that, that would allow this existence of these other properties that I could best, in my mind, envision as being something like a plasma, something that, something that was light as air, that was even partly made from air, but that had properties that allowed it to isolate the content, whether that be a, a contents that's flowing or any kind of contents, you know, it had to have those properties. In other words, it had, if it's going to be a container, it had to be a container made of something stronger than the thing it's containing. And so it couldn't have been made of just air. There had to be something distinctive about that air. Now, I, I also came to know, as would anybody if they looked into water, that it has this concept called surface tension. After a while, I started to wonder if maybe what's happening with the water is its surface is being maximized and therefore its surface tension is being maximized. Or maybe it doesn't have to be maximized. We could just say its surface is increased in a dramatic fashion and a stable fashion. Something has to keep them from just collapsing in on themselves. You know, in surface tension, the surface is the thing that does that. You know, that's where you have the reduction in the three-dimensionality of the hydrogen bonding. So you see, what I was realizing was that as you reduce the three-dimensionality of the connectedness of H2O molecules to each other, they become stronger. And then, of course, I would look into the books on hydrogen bonding. Nothing in there that would describe anything acting in the way I thought it should act which was, I thought it should be inverse in some way, meaning that there must be something whereby the reduction of their connectedness would result in any remaining connection being stronger. Within that, you would find something structural or tensional, as we say in, in terms of surface tension. The molecules are sticking together along that surface. And so, different geometry, plane, there was a a line and then a point. Plane has, well, how much connectedness and how much disconnectedness is there in a flat surface? Below the surface, it's dense with H2O. Along the surface, right along the surface of water, there would be a reduction in the comprehensiveness in the connectedness due to the flatness of the surface. The molecules along that surface had a reduction of 25%, thus resulting in increased strength of connectedness. In other words, below the surface, they have higher connectedness because they're still bonded to each other four to four, each one having four with, with its surrounding neighbor, each one. Below the surface, they're still highly bonded with each other, but the force of those connections holding them together is almost zero. So I was starting to get this conception of H2O a much more detailed understanding of it than had been available. Now I was able to see that there really was this inverse relationship between connectedness and strength of connectedness. And so out of that, I started to ask the question, well, what if you turned up the dial? What if instead of being three connections and one disconnected, what if you had some way to turn that up even higher? So you had two connections and two that are broken on each of the H2O molecules. Is there some way you could do that? Well, guess what just jumped out in front of me? A line. Think about it. If you have a line, you essentially have a polymer of H2O molecules. They're all connected to each other hand to foot in a sense. The interesting thing about it is those connections now are two and two, right? There's two, each one of those molecules, except for the two at the end, which are three and one, but two and two throughout the whole polymer string. And so now you have some very hard, strong bonds. You have a polymer that appears 
at the at the slightest molecular levels these are incredibly small little hairs of entities and so consider how long i had had this belief in h2o being a plasma in the atmosphere and how over the years i'd imagined that there must be some way for there to be something structural because everything i was seeing tornado videos seemed to suggest exactly that and so to me there just had to be something structural there had to be a literal type of room temperature plasma and, and there had to be some mechanism for this stuff to persist in a stable manner to get back around to where i left off on this little tangent the next step was i needed some way for h2o to stay in a polymer form under high energy conditions because then all these pieces would kind of fit together and that necessitated there being some mechanism like the spinning of h2o micro droplets it's not like i you know was striving to find something that had this sexy spinning part in it in fact when i first realized it i was a little bit horrified because i go oh shit people are not gonna get this they're gonna freak out they're gonna call me names they're gonna say i'm crazy and i'm serious i've really freaked out about that and it turned out to not be wrong by the way but it made sense or it seemed like it might somehow make sense and what i mean by that is that one of the kind of the remaining problems in how we conceptualize this spinning to happen requires for a substance to be able to absorb energy at the point before it starts spinning and then as it starts to spin it doesn't fall apart there has to be something distinctive about something that could do something like that you know because most substances can't do that most substances that are stuck together with regular covalent bonds if you put them in a situation where they are going to be bombarded by other molecules such that they start to spin and then elongate into a polymer where you're going to have problems at first is that they're too hard they're not going to absorb any energy at first and then as they start spinning faster and faster they have, they're going to just shatter and so they're not going to be any use to you if you are trying to achieve if 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 we're trying to envision i should say how a substance could actually spin but then you know after i studied it more i got used to this notion that h2o was inherently elastic and let me explain to you what i mean when i say it was inherently elastic when something is inelastic the force that holds them together once it's broken reduces very quickly and no longer has an effect but when you have a substance that has the qualities of h2o you now have something that when there's a breakage the force actually increases now you say why is that well it's because with the breakage it's they stop neutralizing each other's polarity and they become polar again and they literally start affecting each other before they get very far out of each other's vicinity so you see you have a substance that is extremely forgiving and flexible when it comes to absorbing energy so you see that's really what is so amazing about water is that elasticity that is it's itself is a result of a proper understanding of the hydrogen bonding now a proper understanding of the hydrogen bonding i don't really want to discuss that now other than just to say just look at the videos on that do the math and you know i'll just give you one little big clue here is that polarity has everything to do with whether or not the electron is making a circular path around each of the three nuclei and if it is 
if it's going in a perfectly spherical path, it won't produce any polarity. If, though, any of them are being pulled off course, they not only will affect each of the other electrons on the molecule, but they will produce a relative positive and negative. They will be, to some degree, polar. Keep in mind that any electrical gradient is going to do that, but we're talking about how they themselves are doing it to each other, and that's what the key is with water. And that's where you can really mess up if you don't notice it. H2O molecules bring to each other electrical gradients. Now, H2O molecules are inherently affected by the electrical gradients of their relative atoms. It's come into play when they make hydrogen bonds with each other. And here's the funny thing. As they make hydrogen bonds with each other, the forces that are causing H2O to be a polar molecule cause its electrons to take a less circular path around their nuclei are now perfectly opposed by the electrical gradients from adjacent H2O molecule. And so what happens when they are perfectly surrounded by each other, they neutralize any electrical gradients caused by each other, making a situation where symmetry of electrical gradients relative to nuclei when they are connected to each other is perfectly symmetric. And when they disconnect from each other, the inherent polarity of each H2O molecule comes back in force. They go back to being polar again. And so within that, there's this kind of a constant movement. There's a kind of a constant, like a rubber band-like electromagnetic elasticity. And you see, without that, there's just no way you could envision a substance having the ability to absorb energy and take up this spinning, the spinning that causes them to elongate into polymers. And these polymers in the trillions spin faster and faster. And they persist right along the place where they are most needed to create a pipe. And that being the place where you have this wind shear, which is spun around itself and formed into a vortice. So wind shear causes this substance to come into existence. And once the substance comes into existence, it creates isolation of the flow by way of twisting around itself to create a vortice. And that isolation of flow greatly reduces the amount of general friction and loss of energy it would have through disbursement. In fact, it eliminates most of it, allowing the wind within the vortice to actually accelerate. It's going from a place of relatively high pressure to a place of relatively low pressure. Keep in mind that tube extends all the way up and shooting into the jet stream, and it doesn't matter how many thousands of miles away it is. And that's the way our weather actually works. Without the substance, it couldn't. And so that's my explanation as to why I am sympathetic to people who are incredulous when they encounter this notion of H2O molecules spinning in the atmosphere in chains or in polymers. How could you not be incredulous to that when you first hear it? But being incredulous to something like this isn't fair unless you're also incredulous to some of the other nonsense that's being fed to you by a really deluded meteorological establishment. They've so completely lost track of the fact that they're completely confused. They're so confused. Well, they're completely confused about how the atmosphere works. There's no doubt about that. But they've also lost track of how completely confused they are. So they don't really even have much of a perspective.
you know, it's well known that groups are delusional. And so a reasonable person is going to go, okay, we all know the crowd believes this, but who knows, maybe there's this. So being reasonable people, I expect scientists to automatically take that attitude. But uh, amongst meteorologists and, frankly, in academia, exactly the opposite is the case. They are kind of in lockdown mode intellectually. They're somewhat confused, and that's what people do when they become confused. They, they circle the wagons. They do their best to put up a, a front, to not look confused. And they use whatever techniques they need to achieve that, including such things as just simply ignoring the issue, which is... And in fact, much of academia is set up to make that easy. Fortunately, what often happens, though, is they go into hiding. And that's what's happened with meteorology and also water theory. Really, pretty much all the natural sciences, to the degree that they depend on water to perform some function therein, it definitely has ruined any chance of meteorology actually understanding storms.